I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, hello again, my friend. Good to see you around these parts at the Stream Police Podcast. I am Clint Davis. I talk movies and television here on the show every single month. I guess you know that by now, unless you're new to the show, which welcome in to the fold. Always glad to have a new listener. I do urge you, if you are new to the show, uh, we uh, our show's pretty much timeless. You can go back and listen through to any of the old episodes that may pique your fancy as far as what uh, we're talking about. We put it there in the title. If it's not in the title, then check the description and you'll see kind of a detailed rundown of what we talk about in each episode. And if there's uh, a movie or a TV show or a musical artist that uh, you've been interested in but haven't you know, checked out yet or have been uh, kind of wondering yourself uh, what the hype was all about, then uh, we'll tell you here on the show. So just go back through all the old uh, archived episodes and I'm sure you'll find some things uh, that you've been kind of wondering about yourself, and you can hear our take for whatever that uh, whatever that may mean to you. I am Clint Davis, though. Again, you can follow me on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis, Mr. Clint Davis. There, you'll see what I'm watching, kind of as I'm watching it on a nightly basis. And uh, if you want to follow me on YouTube, subscribe to me. I should say I am at Overdue Review, and I've been trying to post more kind of long form video reviews of movies up there as well done a couple already this year and hopefully if you go on there you will like them andy is on instagram at andy sedlak a-n-d-y-s-e-d-l-a-k and we'll be hearing from andy who talks music here on the show every month in just a little bit he's going to be talking about some kind of uh timely songs that have to do with disease and all kind of infectious viral spreadings uh, here on the show just in time for the coronavirus outbreak. So we'll be hearing from him in just a little bit. But again, I'm Clint Davis. I sit in my closet outside of Columbus, Ohio, and uh, I always like to light up a stogie before I get going here on the show. So let me go ahead and do that. Let me go ahead and get it lit up. All right, that's good. That's the way I like to start it. I apologize if you can hear my son kind of yelling uh, in this episode. He's uh, Him and my wife are playing and reading some books uh, right now, and he's loud, man. Even though I'm tucked away here in the closet, got some soundproofing around me, He's uh, he can cut through it all. So, again, apologies for uh, the listeners who are listening on headphones and who can pick a little bit of that up. Anyway, uh, I mentioned, uh, yeah, the the 
the coronavirus, obviously, which is on everyone's mind right now. Uh, one thing I'm going to say about this, the outbreak has robbed all of us of live sports and live events, which sucks, especially around this time. Because March Madness, I don't know about you, but I mean, that's that's pretty much my favorite live television event every year without fail. It's just one of those things. I mean, when else can you, you know, kind of be allowed to be done with work at noon and just watch basketball from noon until midnight, uh, even if it's teams that you know nothing about, but it's just, I don't know, it's always fun. It's sudden death. I mean, who doesn't love it? So it's just kind of a really shitty time for this to hit and rob us of all these great things. I mean, why couldn't it have hit in the middle of the summer and taken away uh, just baseball every day? That I think that we would probably all be all right with that. But anyway, it's robbed us of live sports. It's robbed us of live events, concerts. That sucks. But this is kind of a dream come true scenario for introverts and for people with backlogs of movies and TV shows to watch. So I'm talking to you, my Stream Police podcast uh, fellow deputized officer. I'm urging you to use your quarantine time wisely and rip through some of those shows that you've been holding off on for whatever reason. They've just been on the list for a long time. You haven't had the time. You haven't had the inclination. This is a perfect chance to tear through them. So if you've never watched The Wire or you never watched Six Feet Under and you've got an HBO Now subscription or you've got an Amazon Prime subscription because they're on there too, you can squeeze those shows in nicely in a few weeks and they're two of the best shows of all time. If you have a subscription, like I said, to HBO Now or Prime Video, check those out. Same for Mad Men or Breaking Bad if you've got Netflix and you never have taken the time to watch those or if you have Hulu and you haven't sat around and watched The Handmaid's Tale um, or you haven't watched Seinfeld and you want to kind of you know find some time to watch that this is a good time to watch through some of those shows although I will say that The Handmaid's Tale might be a little grim for this particular point in time if you're looking for something to kind of make you forget about all the troubles of the world that's not the show to watch. I have lost my plug for endless movie watching, classic movie watching, since the Columbus Library System closed all of its branches for at least three weeks. So I'm going to be stuck. Luckily, I've got a big stockpile of movies that I've bought. Since I'm a big movie collector, I've bought a bunch of movies over the years that I still haven't gotten around to watching. So this will be a good time for me to dip into those finally. Um, get the spur in my ass that I've needed to watch some of those movies that I've collected but haven't bothered to watch yet. Um, but I might have to start a subscription to the Criterion channel to make up for it, honestly. Uh, this is also a great time to start using apps like Canopy and Tubi if you haven't already got them. Tubi is T-U-B-I. Canopy is K-A-N-O-P-Y. Those two apps are definitely the most interesting as far as movie selections go of any streaming services out there. And both of them are free to use. Canopy, I think you have to have a uh, library card. So if you have a library card or if you know somebody with one, you can probably use theirs to log into it. Uh, And Tubi is just one of those kind of ad-supported deals. So it's got a lot of really good movies, especially like indie stuff. Um, acclaimed, kind of more obscure, a lot of art house kind of stuff, but just really good, uh, good movies on Tubi that that are kind of harder to find in other places, uh, and it's free to use. But you just have to watch ads. So like through in, in a two hour movie, you'll see like four ad breaks come up, and they'll be short ad breaks. Uh, so it's you know it's not bad, and the movies are uncut. It's not like watching them on TV where they're censored. So I recommend both of those in this time of of endless free time that we've got right now at home. So what movies and shows will you be checking out with your extra 
self-quarantine time, hit me up with a message on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis or email me at theclintdavis at gmail.com. I'd love to hear about it. I'll talk about it on the next episode of The Stream Police. Speaking of messages, I got a really good one from one of our listeners recently. Got a message from Matt who wrote me on Instagram and said that he and his wife watched the movie Brooklyn after I included it in my list of the ten, uh, my 10 favorite movies of the 2010s. I uh, had raved about that movie plenty of times before that episode, too, so he probably was just tired of hearing me talk about it and decided to finally check it out. Anyway, Matt said that uh, him and his his wife both loved the movie Brooklyn, and he said that at one point, also, he watched um, HBO's classic show Oz after I had talked about it being one of my favorite shows on this program, and uh, he was also in the process of going through AMC's Halt and Catch Fire, which is on Netflix now, and I talked about that. Uh, in the last couple of episodes. So um, I really appreciate that, Matt. I mean, that really, that honestly means a lot. I know that on the stream police, I throw out a lot of recommendations every single month and it's TV shows and it's movies. And I know that the TV shows especially take real time to get through. And I know movies, I mean, a lot of people don't have the time to sit and watch a two hour movie. Uh, but maybe once a week they get the chance to do that. So taking somebody's recommendation and doing that it really means a lot. So, you know, I honestly, I rarely expect anyone to actually go and watch the stuff I recommend, even when I'm like full-throated saying this is great and you'll love it. I just think it's going to be rare that somebody's actually going to take the time to watch it. But when somebody does and tells me they liked it, uh, that really does mean a lot to me. So uh, I'm glad that uh, you guys trust what I'm saying on here a little bit, and hopefully I haven't led you astray too many times in the history of this show, although I'm sure it's happened a few times. Uh, so thanks for listening to the show, Matt, and thank you very much uh, for watching some of those recommendations, man. That means a lot to me. I think uh, you picked some really good ones, too, with Brooklyn and with Oz and with Halt and Catch Fire. That, that's a big, like, wide and varied uh, mix of styles, too, in those three things. Not really a lot of common threads between any of them except for great drama and uh, great character development through all three of them, I would say. Uh, give my wife uh, your best as well. So, uh, again, really appreciate that. If you want to write me a message, again, I'm on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis, and you can email me at theclintdavis at gmail.com. All right, let's get to the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. It's our 49th entry into the canon of the greatest TV show themes ever written. And I wanted to ask you if you got the Inspector Gadget theme out of your head yet. Because, again, I'm I'm sorry that I put that into your head last week. It's just a brutal earworm, uh, and it just finally got bounced out of my head this week since I've had to fill my head with so much uh, worry and nausea over uh, getting an illness. So, anyway, this time for this segment, I've got a theme song that's not nearly as catchy, but is every bit as effective as that Inspector Gadget theme. In honor of the coronavirus pandemic, I'm going with a theme song from a medical drama, since we're all going to spend a lot of time thinking about hospitals and doctors over the next coming weeks. So let me take you back to November, a November, a blustery November night. I don't know if it was blustery. I'm sure it was somewhere, so I'm going to go with that. A blustery November night in 2004, when Fox debuted its hit series, House, and many people first heard its theme song. (music) 
that tune is about as brooding as the main character on the show himself was, right? Dr. Gregory House. And I say many viewers heard this song for the first time in 2004 because the theme song for House actually already existed before the show came out, which is rare for theme songs that we feature in this segment. Usually, I like to go with songs that were written specifically for TV. And in fact, if I can dip into the history books a little bit here, we have to go all the way back to February 2019 for the last time that we inducted a song that already existed before it was used for a show, which was the theme to season one of HBO's True Detective. The song this time for the theme song for House is a song called Teardrop, and it was released all the way in 1998 by the British group Massive Attack. Massive Attack's full version of the song Teardrop is much longer and very different from the one that you hear at the start of House each week, mainly because it has a full set of lyrics. It's not just some dark, dingy, instrumental tune like you would think if you only knew it from the TV show. The one that's played on the show is only 30 seconds long and chooses just a short instrumental portion that's actually edited around lyrics, I believe. The full song, meanwhile, is five and a half minutes long, and I recommend you check it out if you like the sound of the theme song because you've just got kind of an extended version of this and you've got, you know, some lyrics as well thrown in. So I really, I actually like the song a lot, even in addition to it being used as a theme song. I think it works as a theme song and it works as its own full length song. So check it out on Spotify. Again, it's called Teardrop by uh, Massive Attack. And if you like the sound of this song, You'll probably like just about everything you can find by Massive Attack because they specialize in this kind of dark electro-pop stuff that really got big in the 1990s. They also did a song called Angel that you probably already know and think is a cool track if you've ever seen the movie Snatch. The brief opening for House each week is easily one of the better ones of the mid-2000s generation of TV that I've talked about a lot here on the show when the theme song started to kind of lose importance overall as an art form. It actually was nominated for the Emmy for Best Opening Title Design in 2005, but it got upset and lost to Showtime's forgotten series Huff. Anyway, the house opening got robbed because along with that cool theme song I'm playing for you that nailed the main character's entire attitude and vibe, it had these great visuals that showed x-rays and medical drawings of various body parts. It was just a cool little opener that kind of rushes by before each episode. By the time it finished its run, House would end up being one of the biggest medical dramas in TV history, running for eight seasons, 177 episodes on Fox between 2004 and 2012. The idea of following a doctor who was a total dick, basically, and who also happened to be addicted to pain pills was pretty edgy and pretty groundbreaking for a genre that was always way more comfortable showing doctors as heroes, really. I mean, not that ER and Sane Elsewhere didn't show doctors with real problems, but uh, House just felt a little edgier than those shows for some reason. And the show also kind of predicted the opioid epidemic in a way as well, just showing that painkiller addiction can really hit anyone, no matter uh, what kind of life they live. 
The uh, show would end up winning five Emmys and a Peabody Award during its run, and amazingly, Hugh Laurie never won an Emmy despite being nominated six times in the category of Best Lead in a Drama. Um, So that surprised me when I was researching this for this segment. But we're going to give the show one more award as our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. All right, since the last time we spoke, the Oscars happened. I recorded that episode uh, right before they aired and released it right after they aired. So uh, I don't want to spend a bunch of time talking about the show. I just real quickly wanted to say, honestly, I didn't even watch one second of the Oscars this year. Um, And this was a show that, I mean, religiously, I used to always make a big deal to watch and always loved watching. But I've just gotten kind of over it and kind of tired of the ceremony of all of it, but I still value the celebration of actors and the celebration of films. So I will read the results and I'll pay heed to them. Um, But it's, so as a piece of history and as a piece of trivia, I think it's still important, but I just don't really care about watching the show anymore at this point. Uh, Thankfully, Joker did not win Best Picture. Um, So that was avoided by the Academy. And I told you in the last episode that Parasite was my pick for the best of the bunch of Best Picture nominees. So I think the Academy definitely got it right. I think it's going to go down as one of the essential Best Picture winners of all time. Even if it's one of those films that you see once and you probably never want to relive again because the subject matter is just ultimately so heavy. But it is really... um, a fun and engaging watch the first time you watch it with actually a lot of laughs, but it's just a, it's a very dark film. So again, I want to recommend you check out Parasite if you haven't watched it yet. It was a very deserving and surprising and refreshing best picture winner. So I'll give the Academy credit for that. Okay, moving right along. I make no bones about the fact that uh, the TV channel that I probably spend more time watching Um, on a given monthly basis than any others is PBS. I talk about a lot of PBS programming uh, on this show and have throughout the history of the show. I know it's not always the most exciting and pulse-pounding stuff on television, um, but you got to give the network its due for just continuing to uh, fund impressive, important uh, documentary series and great faithful adaptations of classic books and classic characters like Sherlock Holmes and bringing things like musical theater productions to screen on great performances, just things like that other networks just don't do and giving you arguably the premier news magazine show of all time in uh, Frontline. So uh, I just think that uh, I mean PBS just does so much that we should be proud of and it's it's a great service and it doesn't have commercials and it never has so that's what you know kind of again separates it from all the others out there so something that I watched recently on PBS that I was really impressed by I wanted to go ahead and give you um, a review of that so a couple years ago on this show, I raved about PBS's documentary series, The Vietnam War. And if you haven't watched that yet, again, totally recommend you check that one out. It was this huge sweeping look at one of the defining moments in global politics of the past century. It had all these great interviews with people who were there, people who were on both sides of that war, um, people who had no side at all but were there and caught in the middle of it. 
and it was just lined with this like intense, dark music from Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. The film was directed by the great Ken Burns and co-directed by Lynn Novick. And now I want to tell you about another documentary that Novick herself recently did for PBS. This one was called College Behind Bars. I watched it a couple months ago, but I hadn't had the chance to tell you about it yet, so I wanted to do that now. And compared to the Vietnam War documentary, College Behind Bars is a much smaller undertaking, but the subject matter is more timely and frankly more impactful to many Americans today. In the course of four one-hour installments, Lynn Novick takes you into several of America's prisons um, I believe they're all in the state of New York. And she shows you the journey of inmates who are students in a demanding college program that's run by New York's Bard College. This is a full-time and long-term and total commitment. When that door closes, you're at Bard College. Several of you have in the past referenced things like W.B. Du Bois' double consciousness, right? A lot of the stuff that I was reading, I couldn't understand what it was. You know, it would take me two, three hours just to get past two pages. Anything and everything you believed or was taught to believe, none of that matters. It's like, all that's bullshit. Now I want you to read with like a fresh slate. This documentary is honestly one of the best things that I've seen on PBS in a long time. And that's really saying something because, as I said, they consistently produce great television of all kinds. But what made College Behind Bars remarkable to me was how intimately Novick got to know the inmates that she interviews. Um, just peeling away all those veneers of the t stereotypical stuff you think of when you think of prisoners who are in maximum security institutions. Um and getting to know them just as regular people and as people who have vision and who have drive to really do something and not just um, trying to survive in prison. I mean, they're really trying to make something of themselves. And that's not something that we see a lot of in the mainstream media, especially and even in prison documentaries. Usually a lot of prison documentaries are just doom and gloom and it all is kind of about the, it's all kind of like weirdly titillating usually when you're watching something about prison. But College Behind Bars was much more human and um, just was a really interesting spin on the prison documentary and also on a documentary about something as sweeping as education. Uh, again, I just thought it was remarkable because she got to know these men and women very intimately over the course of the film, which I think she filmed over like a year or more. Um, and I, I was amazed at what this movie revealed about how much of a difference education can make in really reforming people who've been convicted of violent crimes. Um, and if you're serious about wanting prison to be something about rehabilitation versus just punishment, then it's, it's like a no-brainer that you've got to include education into the mix even though that makes some people really upset and they think that, you know, they should, people in prison should just be treated as animals. This movie shows you what a huge difference education has um, on people who otherwise would be given no outlets of any kind when they're behind bars and then basically no hope once they get out. So there's, it's no wonder that they end up doing something else and going back in, uh, going back inside. So not all the students that she interviews in this movie have a happy ending, though, and none of them have an easy path to graduating. But watching them kind of go through this really intensive program, this is not easy stuff at all. It's not, um, I mean, it's really hard. And it made 
my time in college looked like a piece of cake. I'm talking about the content in the classes and just the way they have to do it because they have to cram so much learning into a single year and they only get like a couple hours out of each long day to spend time in the classroom and they don't have, you know, internet access and stuff like that. So it's a really hard way, old school kind of way to learn. Um, but watching them go through this program for like more than a year is really rewarding and really gripping to watch. And you really find yourself rooting for these guys and these women. The, uh, the line that they walk to keep getting access to their classes is so strict because if they basically make like any kind of behavioral mistakes, they are banned from this program. It's very selective. Um, it's like more selective even than getting into a really good colleges if you're not in prison because there's so many people in prison and there's so few spots in these classes. So it's really hard to even get into it. So to stay in it is very difficult as well. You have to maintain, um, you know, the the work and you have to maintain great behavior, like impeccable behavior outside of the classroom. Um, so it's just, it's a really tough line to walk. And I think, again, that goes with the rehabilitation part of being in prison because it's, there are real consequences for these guys and these women if they don't walk the real tight line that sometimes honestly is unfair because a few of them end up getting kicked out of the program because of somewhat minor infractions and that, and they lose their access to an education because of uh, something that they did in a moment that was stupid. So these guys have to pull all-nighters. They read really intense books. They also have to write a thesis on a subject that they've researched intently without access to the internet, meaning that they've researched it the hard way. And they've written these massive papers by hand uh, in just their first year. So the, the first year ends with having to write a thesis. So again, it's very advanced. It's very intense stuff. It's much more than your typical kind of undergrad program where you can coast through a lot and still end up with a degree. This this is a tough degree to get. Um, but all these inmates, they're all so proud of the work that they end up doing, and they're, they're so intently focused on it that it really gives them the kind of purpose that most people in prison and people out of prison can only imagine having in their lives. College. It helps us become civic beings. It helps us understand that we have an interest in our community, that our community is a part of us and we are a part of it. Now, I was just thinking about uh, this quote from a song of myself. I am vast, I contain multitudes. The individual is not just this set being. His relationship to everyone else and everything else in the world constitutes this oneness. What I do today may affect what someone is capable of doing tomorrow or vice versa. College Behind Bars does not waste a bunch of time getting into the opposing views on prison college systems, even though there are a lot of opposing views on it. Um, Novik touches on it and touches on why some people feel that way, but... Nobody from the New York Corrections Department would agree to give her an interview for this movie. So there's not a lot of like kind of stuffed shirt talking about why, you know, prisoners should be denied access to education. Uh, so I'm glad ultimately the film doesn't go into all that opposing stuff because it, that's not what it's about. This this movie is not about the overall, you know, politics behind a program like giving education to prisoners. It's 
really just a detailed look into a system that many people don't know much about and a view of people in prison that is so different than the stereotypical stuff that we usually see in movies and documentaries about time in prison. Um, So, you know, my eyes were open to a lot of things. It's also a good look at education, period, and how seriously you should take it if you have access to it. I wish I could have seen College Behind Bars when I was in college myself because I think it would have made me take it a lot more seriously and feel a lot more lucky to be able to have access to it as easily as I had it. Uh, The whole movie clocks in at about three hours and 45 minutes And it can be broken up into three or four nights easily, thanks to the natural breaks between each of the four episodes. So it's a a very well-done movie, Uh, a pretty fast watch for you. Uh, And I think you'll want to watch them right in a row because you'll just want to see what happens to these men and women and if they're able to make it through. Um, And I I think Lynn Novick should be really proud of uh, what she did with College Behind Bars. I would honestly say that this is a more engaging watch than the Vietnam War was, mostly because it's so contemporary, it's so human, um, and it's just vital for right now. It's a lot more applicable to your own life versus just the Vietnam War, which was really mostly a history lesson. There were certainly things to take away from that about, you know, trusting the government and stuff like that. Um, But a lot of us have already learned those lessons about Vietnam from watching all the myriad Vietnam movies, reading Vietnam books, listening to all the great anti-Vietnam music that was made over the years. But something like this, um, an education system in prison, has this is not well-worn ground. This is something that's really not been covered, especially not in this kind of detail. So I totally recommend you check it out. The film is called College Behind Bars. It's now streaming from PBS. Um, and uh, you, check it out if you get a chance because it's a, it's a really good watch. Um, a great documentary from PBS. I don't want to say all of the officers, and maybe not majority of them, but quite a few of them, don't see me as a student. I'm a prisoner. We have to remember that there are a lot of people who believe that what we do is wrong. But over the course of years that we have been doing this work, that the politics have changed at the local, the state, and the federal level. This is a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for me. I don't care what you do. Take the computers, take the library, take everything. As long as I have my books. Exactly, they've done it before. And what did you guys do? We wrote papers by hand. All right, I'm going to toss things over to that man who is self-quarantining all the way up in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. Let's see what he's been listening to over this past month. Take it away, Andy Sedlak. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss.
Hey there. Well, I guess you've got plenty of downtime now uh, to listen to the show. <laughs> My name is Andy Sedlak. I'm in charge of the music here um, on the Stream Police podcast. Are you surviving Corona Mania? As I talk to you right now, I am um, I'm barricaded inside my house, um, beautiful Cleveland, Ohio, where we have had, I think we're up to 38 confirmed cases of coronavirus, COVID-19, uh, but it ain't getting in here, baby. All right, it's not, not getting in this place. Me, my dog, I got you with me, few reliable records, um, I'm getting through. I'm getting through. But uh, but no, no, sir. No COVID-19 on uh, East 213th Street. And, you know, it, it seems like people, it seems like people are either like flippant or, or just super melodramatic about this whole thing. You know, it, it just, it's weird to be sure. This, this is odd. Patience is tested. Uh, but just, hey, just, just. Be cool. Just be cool. If we lay low, uh, if we do what we should, uh, we'll get through this, and and it'll be back to reality. And I suppose we've probably got more time than ever (laughs) to to entertain ourselves. How have I been doing it? Well, I I have watched so many movies. Uh, Let's see. By far the best thing that I watched uh, was Boys in the Hood. Um, incredible, just John Singleton, just absolutely incredible. Um, beyond that, uh, what else have I seen? Uh, Scarface. I haven't, I haven't watched Scarface in like ten years. Um, it's fun. It's it's goofy, but you know it's fun. Um, Nine to Five with um, Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton, Jane Fonda. Um, really enjoyed that. That was fun. Um, watch Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Uh, it gets better every time I watch it. You guys had shirts on when you came in here. Well, something happened to him, man. <laughs> Come on, Spicoli. Just put the shirts back on. You see that sign? No shirt, no shoes, no dice. No <laughs> right. Learn it. Know it. Live it. Uh, let's see. What else have I seen? Uh, Vertigo. Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Jimmy Stewart. Kim Novak. Uh, it's good. Overrated, but good. Uh, watched a, a kind of an obscure neo-noir from the early 90s called Romeo is Bleeding. Uh, it's got Clint's buddy Gary Oldman in it. Um, also finished a book, kind of a pulpy thing, called One Good Deed. Uh, it's by an author named David Baldacci. I've ordered another book. I'll start on that soon. So we're just filling time. We're filling time. Actually, I, and I'll tell you what. I've done a little bit of research into maybe starting to sit down and write my own book. Yeah. How about that? Going back and like, you know, I've been reading like historical newspaper stories and touching base with various sources. So we'll see if it comes to fruition or not, but but at least at this early stage, I'm having fun doing the research. And no, I'm not going to tell you what it's about. 
Um, you know, I, I can't do that until I'm ready to commit. But it would be a nonfiction thing, sports-related, sort of related to history. Uh, but but that's that's all I'll say. And obviously, been listening to a lot of music too. And I'll tell you what has been getting me through just a little bit later on in the show. But the coronavirus, it's all that anyone's talking about. And you know how like when you're in a car, you're driving, and all of a sudden you have to slam on the brakes, tires squeal, but then boom, you're stopped. And it happens so fast that your heart rate is still just jacked. Like you're all out of whack. And I think that's where we are right now. (laughs) Collectively, that's where we are. They're filling into music. The music industry is not immune. Billie Eilish postponed a tour. ZZ Top rescheduled a residency in Las Vegas. Guns N' Roses postponed a tour. Alanis Morissette, Sturgill Simpson, Celine Dion, Tom York, all canceled events. Coachella was canceled. Glastonbury canceled. Kenny Chesney, Cher, Michael Buble, all either canceled or postponed their tours. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony has been postponed. I had tickets, have tickets, Clint and I, to see the Rolling Stones this summer. That is on hold. I have got Billy Joel tickets. I'm waiting to hear, but I expect that that'll be canceled or postponed. Small music venues are hurting. There's one actually... Uh, Just a few minutes from the house, where I am barricaded inside. It's a nice place, nice venue. I've been there several times. I enjoy it. It's been been there for a long time. Um, But they're just getting by as it is. And they, they posted on Facebook recently basically saying they're fucked. It's hard. It is hard. Some artists have been hosting virtual concerts. You can check that stuff out online, on on social media. The Dropkick Murphys have done it. John Legend has done it. Coldplay has done it. Cardi B has chimed in, and I think in a moment like this, her voice is simply one we need to hear. Here's Cardi B. I'm a little scared, you know what I'm saying? Like, shit, shit got me panicking. And a lot of you motherfuckers think it's a joke, kiki, 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 like I was thinking, right? But that shit right there, just because you think you are mute to it, guess what? Your pocket ain't, bitch, because a lot of shit comes from motherfucking China, bitch. So if you wonder where your motherfucking weave or your fashion over motherfucking packages have arrived, guess what, bitch? <laughs> Coronavirus! Coronavirus! I'm telling you, shit is real! Yeah, I think she captured the moment. A calming voice. Somebody remixed her rant, and 
of course, you know, weird stuff like that is, is you know, makes the rounds on, on the internet all the time. Um, but it actually has turned into a top 10 hit right here in the U.S. It's a top, this is a top 10 hit as we speak. Yeah, that's number one on iTunes in Bulgaria and Egypt and Brazil, actually. So there you go. A song for the moment. The, the, um, the what's going on of 2020. And it should be noted that Cardi B said that any money that she makes off of that track will be donated to charity. So maybe something good will will come out of that. And in light of recent events, REM's It's the End of the World as We Know It has re-entered the iTunes Top 100. That song came out in 1987, 30, what, three years ago? Uh, but it's found an unlikely home in 2020. According to Spotify, there are already... More than 65 songs with coronavirus in the title. There are seven with COVID-19 in the title. Uh, Here's one that has been streamed over 100,000 times. That's Mr. Cumbia, a Latin artist actually living right here in the States. Um, but if you think he's making money, he's he's really not. Spotify pays between like three one-hundredths of a dollar and eight one-hundredths of a dollar per play. So uh, so if over, let's see, 100,000 people have played it, then the artist has maybe brought in between three and 800 bucks. Not much, right? All things considering. Um, But, you know, songs about disease are actually, it's actually kind of its own subgenre. Most of the time, disease is used as a metaphor in music, describing something inescapable, something uh, that, that one suffers through. Um, that's certainly the case in this song uh, from Matchbox 20. Here you go. I got a disease deep inside me makes me feel uneasy, baby. I can't live without you. Tell me, what am I supposed to do about it? Keep your distance from it. Don't pay no attention to me. I got a disease. Other songs are literally about diseases. 
And there are more of them than you might think. Some are famous, uh, like Bruce Springsteen's Streets of Philadelphia, like the movie that it was written for. The song deals uh, broadly with the AIDS epidemic. Night is falling, I'm blind awake. I can feel myself fading away. So receive me, brother, with you, faithless kiss, or will we? Leave each other alone like this on the streets of Philadelphia. Other songs are less well known. Uh, here's one by Corn. It's called So Unfair. Uh, Jonathan Davis wrote this song about his son's struggles uh, with diabetes. My son is on the prowl. What's gonna happen today? Sometimes I feel empty inside. He takes that all away. Feeling sorry is not allowed. There's times I have bad days. But he is still alive and well. It's all I need Some disease songs are downright quirky. Here's a tune from the 1980s called Cardiac Arrest. It's by a band called Madness Madness. We're so sorry we told you not to hide. Now it's just too late. You've got a certain thing. We thought we made it clear. We all voice the in our fears. We left it up to you. There's nothing we can do. Cancer is a topic reserved almost exclusively for country music. This one is right on the nose. Martina McBride's I'm Gonna Love You Through It. Cancer don't discriminate Or care if you're just 38 With three kids who need you in their lives He said I know that you're afraid And I am too but you'll never be alone, I promise you. When you're weak, I'll be strong. When you let go, I'll hold on. And when you need to cry, I swear that I'll be there to dry your eyes. When you feel lost, you scared to death, like you can't take one more step. Most of the time, cancer is a topic exclusively in country music, but Kanye West did tackle the disease on his 2005 album, Late Registration. I know it's past vision and hours, but can I please give her these flowers? The doctor don't want to take procedures. He claim my heart can't take the anesthesia. It'll send a body into a seizure. The little thing by the hospital bed, it'll stop beeping. Hey, chick, 
I'm at a loss for words, what do you say at this time? Remember when I was nine? Tell her everything gon' be fine, but I be lying The family crying, they want her to live, and she trying I'm arguing like, what kind of doctor can we find? You know the best medicine go to people that's paid If Magic Johnson got a cure for AIDS And all the broke motherfuckers passed away You telling me if my grandma's in the NBA Right now she'll be okay But since she was just a secretary Worked for the church for 35 years Things supposed to stop right here My grandfather trying to pull it together He's grown That's where I get my confidence from Asked the nurse, did you do the research? She asked me, can you sign some t-shirts? Bitch, is you smoking reefer? So the topic of disease is thoroughly vetted. Songs are written uh, about everything that includes disease. Famous artists who have passed away from various diseases include Malcolm Young of ACDC. He had dementia. Glenn Campbell had Alzheimer's. David Bowie had liver cancer. Eartha Kitt had colon cancer. Frank Sinatra had bladder cancer. Bob Marley had melanoma. Warren Zevon had mesothelioma. I digress. When all is said and done here, look, coronavirus will eventually become a distant memory. Now, if we do what we're supposed to, if we stay smart, if we hunker down, it'll pass. These coronavirus songs uh, will be forgotten about. And all of a sudden, we're going to be in the mood for something else, right? We're going to be listening to songs like this. I can see clearly now the rain is gone I can see all obstacles in my way Gone are the dark clouds that had me blind It's going to be Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine? Or uh, this, I'll tell you what, man, when, when we're ready to get out again, I'll tell you what I, I'm going to do. I'm going to go somewhere, I'm, whatever. I'm going to put the windows down. I'm going to drive. I, yeah, I could do that now. But, it's, you know, look, once it's past us, once it's beyond us, we're in that mindset, I'm going to blast this song, this song in the car and just freaking go. It's by the Mavericks. Baby, tomorrow's a brand new. And of course, I guarantee you that you are going to hear <laughs> this song as well when Corona Mania is through. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. I said, it's all right. All right, friends. Uh, we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. Every month we add five more songs to said playlist, which you can find and stream on Spotify. All you have to do is search uh, Stream Police. All of these songs are from albums that I have been listening to during my self-quarantine. First, from the record entitled The Philip Linet Album, it's Gino by Phil Linet. 
From the record, Lightning Hopkins in New York, it's Take It Easy by Lightning Hopkins. Take it easy, take it easy, little Now tell me what is wrong with you. Darling, you know I try to do everything in this world. Everything in the world you tell me to Whoa, but it seem like you don't like my word Don't seem like you wanna do like I tell you to Like my words Don't want to do like I'll tell you to From Children of Paradise Next This is called Don't by Willie Nile Another one of the uh, Another one of these songs that's very much Of the moment I was born in the land of the free At least they said that's how it's supposed to be Corporations came along, they said that that was wrong To my sisters and my brothers and me But I said, don't let the fuckers kill your buzz Don't let the fuckers kill your buzz Don't let the fuckers turn you into suckers Don't let the fuckers kill your buzz Alright, now uh, from the Ghost of Tom Joad record It's Straight Time by Bruce Springsteen Got out of prison back in 86 and I found a wife Walked the clean and narrow Trying to stay out and stay alive Got a job rendering It ain't gonna make me rich In the darkness before dinner comes Sometimes I can feel the itch Got a cold mind Go trip and cross that thin line Sick of doing straight time And finally, from America's Most Wanted This is an old favorite of mine It's the title track, America's Most Wanted by Ice Cube Hey yo, here's what the poster read Ice Cube is wanted dead That's all it said I put head to bed to bed to see With all the green his shots and sirens when I feed first, they your rings, now they my rings. So give it up, punk, then I just put another jack in progress. It's the American what? Cause I'm the G-A-N-G-S-T-A, Ice Cube, a motherfucking clap go. And try to catch the early brother, they slap so. Who gets the one? And if I'm caught in the trap, you know I'ma beat the rap with a 
top-notch production from the bomb squad there. Okay. I'm going to send it back to Clint. Don't do anything stupid. Stay down. Stay conservative. Hunker down. That's what I'm doing. All right, see ya. Thank you very much, Andy. Always good to hear from you. And hopefully, man, Andy and I are getting ready to go and see the Rolling Stones together. We've both seen them live, but we've never watched them live together. Uh, We're getting ready to go see them in Cleveland just in a matter of weeks from now when you'll be hearing this episode. And uh, we're both really hoping that... Uh, it doesn't end up getting canceled because of freaking COVID-19. So, And I've got really good seats for Beth and I to go see Roger Waters in August in Cincinnati. And um, I'm like crossing my fingers for that one too because that's a guy I've never seen. I've always wanted to. And uh, just I'm really worried that now that I finally got the tickets, I'm going to lose my chance. And, I mean, these guys are old, you know what I mean? So if, it's kind of like if you don't strike while the iron's hot, you don't know if you'll ever get the chance again to – See them without being too maudlin here. Anyway, let's move right along. Now, last month on uh, The Stream Police, I did a teardown of the movie Joker, and I talked about how, you know, I thought it was just one of those movies that was the critical acclaim was blown way out of proportion for what was really depicted in the film and what it really gave us, and... um how it was really just a mix of a lot of things we had already seen done in other movies um, and a lot of times seen them done better in other movies and they were just brought together in this film and, and made up like it was something new and groundbreaking when it really wasn't. Anyway, in my teardown of that movie, Beth told me that after she listened to it, she thought I sounded too pretentious. So she thought I needed to bring myself down a few pegs by telling you what I've been spending hours watching in this past month. And I wasn't going to bring it up, but... I think that would be a disservice to our friendship, which is built on honesty, all right? So here it goes. In the past month, I have become legitimately addicted to TLC's show, My 600-Pound Life. Since the last time we spoke, my friend, I must have watched 20 episodes of this show, which equals out to 40 hours of watching this show because every episode is two hours long. Why have I gotten so sucked into this show with a title that makes it sound like common shit? Well, let me tell you. Beth herself has enjoyed watching My 600 Pound Life for years. She often would use it as like a just a filler show, just kind of background stuff while she was staying like at a hotel for work or if she was somewhere away from me staying with her parents or something like that and had nothing to do, she'd flip on the TV, go to TLC, and there would usually be episodes of My 600 Pound Life just playing in reruns ad nauseum. I used to make fun of her so bad simply because the show sounded like such a shitty way to spend your precious TV time. I mean, doesn't my 600 pound life, doesn't it sound like just one of those trash throwaway, uh, you know, from, from that title, I'm just imagining some kind of exploitative bit of reality TV where we follow these like immobile, morbidly obese people through their daily lives and we're supposed to point and laugh at them and occasionally watch them get their walls, their houses removed so they could go out and, you know, somewhere and get some more food or something. That was what I thought the show basically was. What I did not realize was how much My 600 Pound Life teaches you about addiction, really. That's the core kind of theme of the show. 
Also, where eating disorders come from and how tough weight loss can be, even when your entire life depends on it and you yourself claim you are ready to go through with it. Those are the things that you learn constantly when you watch episodes of the show, and that's why I found myself drawn so into it in this past month. I've been watching way too much of the show. So anyway, what happens in a typical episode of My 600-Pound Life, if you've never seen it, my friend? is you follow a person. Each episode follows a different person, and the name of the episode will be So-and-So's Story. So it'll be like Jeff's Story. And so for two hours, we'll follow Jeff, who's a guy who would weigh at least 600 pounds, although many of the people who the show Chronicles weigh at least 800 pounds. Some of them even weigh more than 900 pounds. And they're, most of them are completely immobile. And they're on, Jeff would be on this journey to lose weight and ultimately qualify for bariatric surgery that would help him lose even more weight. That's the typical, you know, beginning, ending, middle ending goal of an episode of My 600 Pound Life. And what you do is you follow them for an entire year. So the cameras follow each patient for 12 months and we see whether or not they make progress, take it seriously, or if they don't, they just blow the whole thing off, even though their health really is hanging in the balance here. And they work on this with a doctor in Houston who is named Dr. Now, who is really the star of the show. And I'll get back to Dr. Now in a second, but I want to continue telling you about what this show's about. So each episode follows the patient, like I said, for 12 months, and they undertake this like extreme lifestyle change. And we see whether they stick with it or if, and they end up getting surgery or if they completely fail and ultimately get kicked out of the program for not applying themselves. And they weigh in like every month or two at Dr. Dow's office. So we see how their progress is. They don't know what they've weighed because, I mean, when you weigh that much, you can't get on a regular bathroom scale. I think they they max out at like 400 pounds. So they can't even get on a scale. Uh, so they have to do it at his office. And so it's a surprise to them how much they weigh. And it's this whole that's the kind of hook that keeps you watching. But there's so much more kind of going on behind the scenes there. And we see as the patients also undergo psychotherapy as well, especially if their food addiction stems from past trauma, which it almost always does. That's the thing about my 600 pound life that consistently amazes me is just seeing the, the similarities between the patients and how they develop their addiction to food, how they develop these severe eating disorders where they just constantly overeat all day long. I mean, it is constant eating. What, what amazes me every time I watch an episode of this is seeing how food addiction works and just seeing the sheer amount of eating that it takes to grow to be 600, 700, 800, 900 pounds. I mean, we've all known, if you live in the United States, you know people who are in the 300s or even maybe like getting close up there to about the 400s. You've known people in your life that are that big. It's just a fact. And you might even be at that point yourself. But this kind of overeating, the people that, that get to the point where they're on this show, this kind of overeating takes weight gain to its most extreme. I mean, it's just like what this show always reminds me of is that Classic A&E show, Intervention. Anybody remember that show? I remember watching that some when I was uh, younger, When it back when it was on. It's not on anymore, but Intervention was about people who were hooked on different drugs. Every episode, they'd follow someone uh, and their family members and trying to get them into a rehab program and how tough that was. And the show was just maddening to watch sometimes because you just want to grab the person and be like, don't you understand? Like, you're going to kill yourself if you don't do this. But it's so much about the grip that, an addiction puts on you and how really just 
incredibly tough it is to walk away from it. And it looks so easy to someone who's not addicted to something. But when you're in the throes of it, I mean, there's, there's nothing like it. So this show always reminds me of intervention because on that show, you would see the extremes someone would go to to keep up their addiction to drugs or like something innocuous as aerosol keyboard cleaner. I remember an episode of that show where the guy was addicted to huffing those aerosol keyboard uh, cleaning cans and he would go around to like five different electronic stores every day buying as many cans as he was legally allowed because there was like a legal limit on how many of those cans you could buy because people were huffing them so much and buying spray paint and stuff like that and 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 just breathing it in and um, I mean they would just go to such drive so far just to get more where people didn't know them um, and it's the same in this show, except you got people who can't really move around. So they rely a lot more on the people in their house to enable them to go pick them up food. They guilt them into it. They're, they're mean to them a lot of times until they'll just give them the food they want. Um, and then you've got the family members saying, oh, I wish that, uh, you know, so-and-so would lose weight and not kill themselves. But then it cuts to them bringing them, uh, you know, a huge bag of eight McDonald's hamburgers and two large fries and a, you know, a huge Coke, which I have seen on that show. There was somebody who ate like six McDonald's uh, quarter pounders in one sitting and two large fries and um, a massive Coke as well. I think an apple pie too. But anyway, the people on this show, they are extreme. They eat eight to 10,000 calories every single day to get to the weights that they're at. And if you can just imagine that, I mean, when you in a day eat like 3000 calories or something on like a really bad diet day where you're just eating crap all the time, you feel pretty bad, right? Well, these people are like tripling that on every single day because as Dr. Now always says, people that weigh 700, 800 pounds, they're not maintaining weight. They are constantly gaining. I mean, they're not, you're not going to maintain that kind of weight. You're going to just keep gaining because you just keep eating because you're addicted to it so again they're extreme and these people often they the only time they ever get out of bed so they're not getting like any they're not burning calories by doing anything because the only time they get out of bed is usually to go to the bathroom in like a portable toilet that's next to the bed because they can't fit on the actual toilet or get into the bathroom or to take a shower but many of them don't even shower they rely on their significant others or caretakers or roommates or whatever to wash them in bed with like rags and it's it is shocking man it's extreme and it's like i mean a lot of times it's gross to watch but it's just uh fascinating as well and really sad in the end as you're watching this and you're watching the kind of uh self-delusion that goes on with a lot of these people which is the same as when you watch the show like intervention or when you watch a show like hoarders or anyone who has this kind of really self-destructive behavior that they know is bad but they really want to keep it up at all costs I haven't had time to start eating healthy. I haven't had time to do anything. There is no excuse for you eating as much as you do. I don't eat that much, but I do have water gain. And you tried to say, no, that is not fluid, but it is. I know my body. I've been in this body for 28 years. Shanae, you've been in that body for 28 years, but I've been practicing medicine for twice that amount of time, and I know what I'm talking about. Your weight is not a result of water. It is a result of fat, okay? Let me talk about Dr. Now, though, for a minute. He is the most baffling television star I think I have ever seen. And I am not saying that lightly. This guy, he is an Iranian immigrant. He's 75 years old. 
So, I mean, he should have been retired already for like 10 years at this point. And he was not made for television whatsoever. This is not a good-looking guy. He's kind of like hunched over with his... Uh, with his posture, you can barely understand a word that he says. I always have to watch the show with subtitles on um, to understand anything he says. His eyes are like these little slits, so you, and he wears glasses anyway, so you can like you can't even see his eyes, which is like the most important thing. I remember when I worked in TV, that was always the most important thing. People need to be able to see your eyes so they can connect with you. And so even when he's got his eyes open, he's talking to the patient, he looks like he's got his eyes shut and he's standing there again. So he's a 75-year-old Iranian immigrant guy who's hunched over, barely opens his eyes, has virtually no bedside manner at all. But I absolutely love this guy, and he is the heart and soul of this entire program. He is what will keep you coming back every time, just to see what Dr. Now will say, what he'll do, the ways he'll kind of inspire them and get them to do this diet, ultimately, that is really going to save their life. And he's a surgeon by trade, and he is just about the only guy in America that will dare take on patients the size of these people because... They could so easily die during surgery. So a lot of doctors, they always say it in the episode, they're like, Dr. Now is the only doctor who will see me. I've, I've looked around, tried all kinds of doctors. He's the only one that would accept me as a patient at my size. So it's it's like their last hope is going to see this guy. So he's the, la- he's the only one that will do it. So, I mean, he's got a set of stones on him. And he takes the responsibility very seriously, and he takes no bullshit excuses from any of them. So it's really refreshing to watch. Because they are deluding themselves the entire time and their family members are deluding them and they're all deluding each other. But then Dr. Now comes in and just throws truth bomb after truth bomb every time they try to make excuses in his office. And he doesn't care how sad their story may be. He doesn't want to hear bullshit. You have gained a lot of weight. I don't know about gaining, maybe swelling. And you think it's all of this fluid? Is there no fat in here? This is what... I've noticed recently. Okay, it's not because your body is retaining fluid. Your leg is swollen because you gained a lot of weight. So it's getting bigger and worse. And you two are delusional. If you think that you can give me the same story again, and you think I'm going to believe you, your weight is controlled by the food you take. Well, she ain't giving me no food. I can tell you. And the thing I'm eating is what she's bringing me. Doctor, now, I think it has a lot. Uh, he does exercises with his arms. I help him with his legs. She's lost 80 pounds, and I'm losing nothing. Something don't add up. You don't think your weight has to do anything with your eating habit? No, I don't. So what do you think your weight come from, thin air? The guy is just totally ruthless sometimes, and it makes for some really funny moments where the patient is obviously lying about how well they stuck to his diet, which is extreme. The diet he gives them is for 1,200 calories a day. So imagine going from 10,000 calories a day to 1,200. Imagine going from your diet to 1,200 calories a day. Uh, it's extreme. And he tells them, though, if you stick to it, you'll lose like 100 pounds in two months, no problem. And they're always like, oh, sure, I got this. No no problem. Fine, I can do that. And, of course, they, they always end up like barely losing any weight the first time they come back, thinking that they've been following the diet. And he just flat out tells them he knows they're lying. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that my 600-pound life is one of the truly important you know, Peabody winning TV shows of its day because it's really not. More than half of the episodes of this show result in a complete waste of time for the viewer. 
um, because the patient ends up not following the diet at all, making endless excuses and never getting close to a goal weight. And you can play like you could play my 600 pound life bingo with pretty much every episode because so many of the same things happen and are said throughout each episode of the show. So it's really I mean, it ends up just being kind of a fun show to watch with someone else and kind of to, you know, yell at the TV and to coach the person on or be mad at them or whatever. It's just, uh, it's kind of one of those kind of shows that's I think better enjoyed in, in a a group rather than by yourself. And each episode, like I said, is two hours long. So it is a, it's a considerable time investment and it is when it is a waste of time, you're really pissed that you spent two hours watching somebody waste your time and watch somebody who's not even pleasant to be around because some of the people on the show, the patients, you really like them and you really root for them. And some of them are just assholes. They're like narcissistic, uh, self-centered, really mean and self uh, just deluded pricks in the end. So it's just like, like I said, intervention. It was the same way. You know I mean? Dealing with addicts, they're not always going to be likable. Sometimes they're just going to be selfish assholes. And so you wonder why am I even watching this and rooting for them? But it makes the ones who really do take it seriously so much more rewarding and fun when you get to one of those. Um, I will also say the things that they show on the series are a bit exploitative at times, like when they always show the person showering at the beginning of the episode and they show the therapy sessions, which is weird uh, because, I mean, you know anything about therapy, it's just strange because they really are opening themselves up about some things that they've kept secret for a long time. And here they are putting them on TLC for everybody to watch. Um and sometimes they'll show like extreme close-ups when they're eating these massive meals and that's just gross and not fun to watch. Uh, so that stuff is awful, but my 600 pound life is a wild ride. And Dr. Now is one of the best characters on TV because he keeps it 100 at all times. So I'm going to tell you if any of this sounds interesting to you at all, give the show a spin, just pick a random episode. It's streaming on Hulu. It's airing on TLC. Um, you know, DVR, whatever, because it airs all the time. Just watch an episode. And if you like one episode, you'll probably like them all because they're very formulaic. It's pretty much the same thing every time. So it's comfort food, but at the same time, it's kind of excruciating to watch at times. So that's, there you go. Those are my thoughts on TLC's My 600 Pound Life. Did you ever think I'd do a review of it here on the show? I didn't, but here I am, man. I'm open to anything and everything that the box can provide. So there you go. There's my take on that show. Again, streaming on Hulu, airing on TLC. And this is not a single incidence of poor choices. And the same thing that drive you to eat before is still playing a role in your life and you haven't been able to get a handle on that situation. I feel I've got a handle on it, but then I have moments. I'm not gonna lie and say that I don't. So losing 285 pounds in a year and a half is not good enough for you. Is that what you're saying? You're not understanding me. It's not about how much you lost. It's about where you're at now and the choices you're making. You're not at your goal weight of 200 pounds. That's your theory. So I recently sat down and watched a movie that I was really excited to see because I liked the director's uh, last project. And this movie got a lot of critical acclaim in 2019. So uh, Beth and I sat down with it since we love horror movies anyway. Um, And the movie is called The Lighthouse. It came out in 2019 and it starred Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. Uh, This movie was directed by Robert Eggers. He's the guy that did The Witch in 2015. And again, if you've uh, listened to this show for a while, 
You know that The Witch was one of my favorite horror movies of the last decade easily, and probably one of my favorite movies overall the last decade. I just loved everything about it. Uh, It was one of those movies that I didn't appreciate fully the first time I saw it, but then the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. Um, And it was for a lot of reasons. It was the humanity of the movie, the themes uh, that were so universal, like rejection, paranoia, suspicion, especially among one's own family and the people that are supposed to protect you and watch out for you. Those were the things that made The Witch just such a fascinating movie to me. Uh, But I got to say, I sat down with The Lighthouse, and this one did not connect with me at all, especially compared to that other movie. Um, In this film, what what it was about was the whole... It was basically one of those two-character films, Two-man movies. It's kind of like, you know, Waiting for Godot or like Sleuth with Lawrence Olivier and Michael Caine. Just two guys in the entire film. And that can work really well sometimes, but if it's characters that you don't really like and if it's performances that don't 100% click for you, then it's going to be a long two-person movie because those are the only characters you've got and they're in every single frame of this thing. Especially Robert Pattinson's character was in every single frame. What it's about is it's about two lighthouse uh, keepers at the uh, about the turn of the 1900s it's like the late 1800s is when it's set um in new england and the guys are you know stuck together on the island for what's supposed to be four weeks and then turns into a longer trip when a storm hits and their relief isn't able to come in so of course it's all the classic stuff about um you know them trying to survive against the elements and trying to uh, you know, size each other up and figure out if the other one is is telling the truth or lying and, and all the, you know, the classic stuff you would imagine if I told you here's a movie set on an island but starring two um, lighthouse keepers. So anyway, that's the setup of the movie. But to me, just this movie did not, it didn't work for me. The lead performance and the character um, in the case of The Witch were both endearing, and they put you firmly on her side. So that was, again, another reason why I like The Witch so much. The lead performance um, and the lead character were, were someone that I really liked, and I really was glad to be on her side. So even if I was unsure how much of a protagonist she actually was, I was glad to sit along with her and take her her ride all the way to the end. In The Lighthouse, though, you're stuck with these two guys that have basically no redeeming qualities between them, and they both have annoying as hell accents to boot. Uh, One thing I want to say about The Lighthouse that I really did like was the cinematography. It is a legitimately beautiful movie, especially in that ugly sort of way. Uh, And the way that the scenes are lit is especially incredible. The way that this movie looks, uh, it was just handled in such a... um, a masterful way. It's a beautiful movie. uh, And I hope this movie will turn some younger people on to how great black and white films can look when they're shot by people with talent, because this one obviously was. So I think uh, visually it's, it's an incredible movie. And if you just see clips of it, you're going to be like, man, this looks like a great movie. It looks intense and it is intense, but it's got to go somewhere. Right. And this one didn't go anywhere to me. Robert Eggers, the guy that directed and wrote the witch, he comes back and directs this one. It's only his second movie. I think he definitely has a lot of talent, but this seemed like one of those kind of vanity projects 
where you make an acclaimed movie and then the studio hands you the reins to do whatever so you end up making a two-hour black-and-white film loaded with salty dog sea captain cliches, our unresolved mysteries, and myths from the sea and from Greek mythology. I mean, who gives a shit about that kind of stuff really at the end of the day? To me, there was just nothing to be taken away from the lighthouse that could be put to use in your actual life or could be thought about in your actual life as something that matters. You know what I'm saying? Like I said, the themes in The Witch were so universal and were so relatable, especially in an era where more people are becoming comfortable with who they are and are... uh, you know, kind of exploring their identity a little bit further than they used to, but they're still being met with some, you know, paranoid eyes and meanness at home, maybe, where they should be the safest. That was the stuff in The Witch that really rang true to me, but The Lighthouse is just nothing there to to take away from it, I don't think. And once it's over, I feel like you pretty much move on, and you don't really need to think about it again. It was kind of all just there. The basics of everything that happened in the movie are pretty much obvious to you from the start. Um, and, and that was a disappointment to me because I was expecting some great surprises as it went along. As far as the acting goes, I kept reading about how the performances in the lighthouse from Defoe and Pattinson were like these amazing powerhouse performances. But when I watched the movie, I only saw one of those and that was Willem Defoe. I thought he was magnetic, intense as hell, and totally got into his character, totally inhabited his body, um, But I have to say that I do think it was kind of the way that any drama student would play an old washed-up sea captain if given the script. So I don't think he really, I don't think it was like the greatest performance of his career or anything. I think his work in the Florida Project was um, even better from a few years ago. That was a fantastic movie. That was one of those that almost made my top 10 of the 2010s. But anyway, Defoe's really good in the film. But Pattinson just did not connect with me. It felt like he was doing an impression of Daniel Day-Lewis from Gangs of New York the entire film. And if you listen to the accents used in both of those movies, you'll see what I'm talking about. So here's Pattinson in The Lighthouse. These lodges is more ramshackle than any shanty boys camp I ever seen. And here's Daniel Day-Lewis from Gangs of New York. You are neither cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. This just was not one of those performances that proved to me that he's a great actor. It was really just a bunch of scenery chewing without a real moment of naked vulnerability, which honestly is probably a failing of the script as much as it is of Pattinson himself to dial into that kind of thing. Defoe at least got one moment where he did show his vulnerability, and that's probably what made his character the more interesting of the pair now that I think about it. But I, I was disappointed with The Lighthouse. I, I expected a lot more from this one. Again, I told you with The Witch, I, I didn't love it the first time I saw it, but I quickly kind of, and by quickly, I mean like later that night, grew to really like this movie, especially as I talked about it with Beth Moore. Um, but The Lighthouse just didn't, it hasn't grown on me yet here, about 24 hours after watching it, and I don't really think it will. There just wasn't a lot here. It's just an unpleasant movie, and I don't think there's really anything here that you need to see, that you can take away from it in your own life and anything that you'll really connect with on a human level, which at the end of the day, to me, is what uh, these kind of movies really are all about. I mean, this isn't some big action spectacle where you can just get lost in it. This is a movie that you should kind of take away something from, I think. But it just didn't work for me. And I wouldn't call it horror either. I didn't think it was a scary movie really at all, honestly, uh, unless you're just scared of rainstorms. Uh, But... Or maybe uh, perhaps if you're scared of mermaids, I guess. But anyway, The Lighthouse uh, is now streaming for purchase and for rental if you see it. Uh, it's a, a beautiful movie. It's just, it feels like the kind of movie that Eggers made 
uh, with the hopes of it being picked up by the Criterion Collection in about 30 years, which it probably will be. So mission accomplished for him there, I have to imagine. But those uh, those are my thoughts on The Lighthouse. Did you see this movie? Uh, if you did, hit me up at uh, Mr. Clint Davis on Instagram or at theclintdavis at gmail.com uh, on an email. What do you call that? Sir? What? I mopped and swept twice over. Yeah, lion dog. I swept them. Kids begrimed and bedabbled. Unwiped, unwashed, and disdained. Get some kind of purr out of molesting me. Come now. I already says. How dare you contradict me, you dog? Now look here. I ain't never intended to be no housewife nor slave in taking this job. And it ain't right. These lodges is more ramshackle than any shanty boys camp I ever seen. The Queen of England's old fancy housekeeper couldn't even done no better than what I done. Because I tell you, I scrubbed this here place twice over. And I say you did nothing of the sort. And I say you swab it again and you swab it proper like this time. And you'll be swabbing it ten times more after that. Okay, so I always like to tell you toward the end of the episode what the best thing I watched this month was, and obviously it was not The Lighthouse. I'm going to have to go way back to 1960 for what I thought was the best thing I watched this entire month, and that is Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus. This was one of the last, I think there were two Kubrick movies I had not seen yet, um, and Spartacus now I can cross off the list. So now Fear and Desire is the last one I've got that I uh, absolutely need to check out. But Spartacus, I don't know why I waited on it so long. I mean, I've always liked Kubrick's movies. I guess I just was worried that his kind of style was going to be lost in what was, uh, you know, kind of his most, his biggest studio film. Um, And it was a little bit, but I don't think that was a bad thing at all because what ended up happening was you have a guy who was clearly one of the great visionary directors Helming a genre that had been so well worn and had been done, you know, so many times, uh, and telling a really a great story with one of the best casts I've ever seen, and it's just an absolutely stunning, beautiful movie. If you like epics, big epics, and you haven't seen Spartacus, you got to watch Spartacus. This is an was an incredible movie. I loved it from start to finish. Legitimately, one of the best casts I have ever seen put together in movies. Let me just run down the names for you. You got Kirk Douglas in the lead. You've got uh, Lawrence Olivier as the villain. You've got Charles Lawton in there as well. Peter Ustinov is in there. And Ustinov and Lawton have some just unbelievably... Like, if you want to see great acting and great dialogue between two masters, just watch the scenes with Charles Lawton and Peter Ustinov. It's it's incredible. It feels like, really, you're just spying on these two guys who happen to be having a conversation, like in a Roman bath somewhere. Um, and it's it's what act, great acting is. They You just get lost in it. Tony Curtis is in it. Gene Simmons is in it uh, as well. It's just a, a, an incredible cast that I didn't... I didn't realize all these people were in this movie. Um, and I have to say that the cinematography absolutely gorgeous kubrick apparently presided over all the cinematography with an iron fist much to the chagrin of the union and to the actual cinematographer himself the whole story i found inspiring uh and what it was about is this true story based on uh, a true story about a roman uh slave uh gladiator slave who ends up leading this army of slaves that he's freed and it's uh it's a really a great story um even if it doesn't all go well in the end but it was i found it really inspiring 
at the end of the day. The acting, like I said, spot on. The portrayal of the kind of self-importance and ego that led to Rome's downfall were all still appropriate today, I thought. Um, and at the Oscars that year, The Apartment was the movie that won Best Picture. And I have to say, I just watched The Apartment for the first time recently as well, and I cannot disagree with that one. Winning Best Picture, uh, if I had to pick between the two, because I just think it was a much more modern kind of novel and still very well done movie. Um, the, the Apartment was just crazy modern and crazy ahead of its time uh, for doing that kind of drama comedy thing that it did so well. But this, Spartacus was like this timeless, big-time studio movie-making you know, kind of piece of cinema from that era of the 1960s that was full of those big studio movies, and it was kind of the last era of those big, the last decade of those big studio movies. So um, what I'm surprised about is the fact that uh, Spartacus was not even nominated for Best Picture, which I think is a robbery, and uh, I think it shows the ultimate dislike of Kubrick and of uh, the screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, who had been blacklisted in Hollywood at the time. I think it just shows how much people didn't like either of those guys at the end of the day. So uh, Spartacus was incredible, though. I definitely recommend you check it out. If you got three hours and a little bit of change to spare one of these days, it's uh, a, a beautiful piece of filmmaking and a must-see for Kubrick fans. I can't believe I waited so long to check it out. Okay, some movies now streaming for you right now. I always like to tell you something on Netflix and something on Amazon. I like to give you something funny and something serious, depending on what you're into. So for Netflix, I'm going to go back to 1982 for my funny pick and give you Tootsie. This was the classic uh, cross-dressing comedy about the out-of-work actor played by Dustin Hoffman who gets so desperate that he resorts to cross-dressing in order to land a gig acting in a uh, soap opera, and he ends up becoming a major star, even though everyone thinks he's uh, kind of an older woman who's just getting her big break in the business. Uh, it's, it's a wild kind of ridiculous uh, you know, movie, but it's just full of great actors. Again, Bill Murray, young Bill Murray, gets a, a really big part here that kind of helps launch him into being a star. Uh, Sidney Pollack just directs the hell out of the thing. Jessica Lange is fantastic in this. Great cast, cool movie. One of those, again, really good comedy dramas uh, from the 1980s. So it's a, it's a good one. It's on Netflix now if you haven't seen it. And something serious for you on Netflix from 1990, Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. If you haven't gotten around to this one, I don't know what you're waiting on. Truly one of the great gangster films of all time um, and really cemented the kind of movie that Scorsese would ultimately be known for because if you go back to 1990, Scorsese hadn't really done a movie like that since Mean Streets and Mean Streets was such a small film that still a lot of people didn't see. He was more known for kind of the real hard-boiled character study kind of dramas like um, Taxi Driver or like Raging Bull that really just zeroed in on the one guy as he was going through this, you know, pressure cooker of a story. But Goodfellas expanded it to kind of him telling these bigger cast stories that he had done a little bit in Mean Streets, but hadn't really gotten back to too much. Um, and I think it would kind of end up uh, defining his his filmmaking for the next 30 years after that. So Goodfellas is a is a great film if you haven't gotten around to it. It's on Netflix now from 1990. And again, just a great cast, man. Ray Liotta, Joe Pesci, Robert De Niro doing career best work. And Lorraine Bracco as well. Who could forget her? Let's go to Amazon. Something funny for you from 1979, Manhattan. I know Woody Allen's name is mud these days, but Manhattan, I'm still going to put up there as one of the most gorgeous movies I have ever seen. Talk about black and white cinematography at its best. Um, 
it is one of those movies I still think about the shots of it. When I think about New York, I mean, I'm not a New York guy, but when I think about New York, shots from Manhattan are what always come to mind. So um, it's just a, a, a beautiful, timeless movie. And um, Woody Allen's actually really good in it uh, as well. It gives a kind of one of a more low-key performance for him. But it's a, a little bit less comic version of like Annie Hall. Uh, kind of thing. It doesn't tell the same story, but its style is a little similar to Annie Hall, but it's it's just a little bit more downbeat and serious, I would say, than that one. But uh, it's still funny, so I'm going to give it to you in my something funny category. If you haven't gotten around it to Manhattan, that was one of those movies that really made me love Woody Allen movies when I first started really getting into him. And uh, something serious for you on Amazon, from 1986, it is Michael Mann's Manhunter. So I got Manhattan, I got Manhunter. Uh, Manhunter was the first time that uh, Dr. Hannibal Lecter had been brought to the cinema screen. Um, And this was uh, the first adaptation of the novel Red Dragon. Um, And Brian Cox ends up playing Hannibal Lecter, does a really good job in it. Of course, his performance would end up being kind of forgotten in the wake of performances from Anthony Hopkins and Mads Mikkelsen. But Brian Cox is really good in this um, and... William Peterson, who would end up being really famous on CSI, he's the lead. Uh, He plays Will Graham in the movie, and uh, it's just a really stylistic movie. I mean, Michael Mann was known back then for for his work on Miami uh, Miami Vice, and the style, that 80s style, especially with that big pulsing soundtrack, really comes through in Manhunter. This is a cool movie that is a little bit 80s, but in all the right ways. I think you'll really like it, especially if you like movies like Drive um, with Ryan Gosling a few years ago. And uh, if you like the Miami Vice kind of aesthetic and the music, that kind of stuff, that uh, electronic kind of thing, and the really dark filmmaking, um, I think you'll like Manhunter. It's a cool kind of 80s noir film that uh, still a lot of people have not discovered yet. But it is on Amazon right now if you want to check it out. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. I appreciate you hanging out with me, my friend, and I'm sure Andy appreciates it as well. We always look forward to hearing from you. Reach out to me at theclintdavis at gmail.com. You can hit Andy at sedlakjournal at gmail.com, S-E-D-L-A-K, journal, at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis, and Andy's there simply at Andy Sedlak. Thank you guys very much. Uh, subscribe to the um, playlist on Spotify if you're there and you can listen to the show on Spotify as well so your entire life pretty much can run on Spotify my friend talk to you next time until then stream on planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.